to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we finish off that chapter. It's been so awesome to be in this book, this short letter. So one of, one of the earliest letters we have written to a church from the Apostle Paul. As I mentioned, it's this letter and the letter to the Galatians that vie for that. And we have scholars debating which one's first, but even if it's the second letter, it's still very young, very old. And, uh, but it's packed with great practical application. I love the entire word of God, obviously. Um, but I love uh, these epistles because they're written to church plants. And kind of where we are in our spiritual lives, corporately. It's good to hear these words as a church plant. Very practical. Pete dealt with verses 1 to 12, I believe, last week. We'll be dealing mainly with verses 13 to 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy and errant word. Hear the word of God to you this morning. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Sends the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Mm-mm-mm. Now, actually, this is a sermon that I had to do. I had to study this passage. I remember in seminary, and I had to do the exegesis from the Greek. So I did plenty of my own work, but I also like to uh, get up off the seat from behind the computer and still use the time wisely, so I listen to sermons on the passage to help get the passage in my heart and mind. And so I listened to this one British brother, uh, Charles Scrine, and I love what he says, um, and it's a great introduction to this passage. He says, he, po he points out from the text, he, he asks this question, I think it's powerful. Where is it that Jesus makes a difference? Now, it makes a difference. Now, now he looks at the text according to uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, and he deals with uh, the passage that Pete, Pete preached from and my passage. And he says this, and it's very, really powerful. It makes a difference in the bedroom, right? It makes a difference in your workplace. And then he says in his British accent, and it makes a difference at your mum's funeral. Those are the kind of places that being a Christian makes a difference. And then he says, Paul's evidence that these are real Christians. It is all taken from normal, everyday human experience. He wants them to grow as Christians. He wants them to please God more and more. But it doesn't take them down some spiritual side alley. It's about your sex life. It's about your job. And it's about your grief. Isn't that awesome? 
Why I bring that up is it's so down to earth. And sometimes you do all the exegesis, you get deep into the theology, and you don't realize the simplicity of what's right in front of you. And I thought he brought that out well. And so now, to put it in my own words, I would say, whether or not you know God through faith in Christ makes a substantial, significant difference in one's everyday human existence. It's all very practical. It's all very down to earth. And here's what Paul said. Those who know God are called to be what? Holy. That is set apart in the way they handle their sex lives. They're to avoid sexual sin and instead use God-given, Holy uh, um, Spirit-empowered self-control. And he mentions in the text, if you look earlier in verse 5, those who don't know God do what? They allow their passion and lust to what? Control them. And they live by their lust. Those who know God love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it says in verse 9 that God himself taught us to do so. Like Paul says, I don't even have to teach you that. God taught you that. You have them living inside. That's a telltale sign that you've been chosen by God, that you're one of his, is that you love the rest of his children. And then the other real practical thing, he says those who know God know the value. And I almost preached a whole sermon on this. And I may do like bonus, like at the end of the DVD, you have like bonus director's cut. I, might, I really will, because I think the world needs to hear this sermon. America does more than ever. But those who know God know the value of leading a quiet life, minding their own business, and working with their own hands. Tell me that won't preach. <laughs> but I'll stop there. But Pete left off there last week, so we pick it up in verse 13, where Paul touches on another area of everyday life where knowing God through faith in Jesus makes a tremendous difference. Literally, um, all the difference in the world. And that's the area of the loss of a believing loved one. What we're going to see is that the gospel, this is so awesome, the gospel sets the limits of our grief. doesn't mean we're not allowed to grieve. Of course, we're human, but it does mean that there are limits as believers to how far our grief goes. Now, real quick, in terms of context, so we can make sense of this whole text, we have to understand that there's one element of the gospel that the Thessalonians seem to hold on to with particular fervor. This church was all about what? The second coming, right? The second coming was a big thing. And literally, after each, at the end of each chapter, Paul mentions it. So obviously it was something that they were uh, very excited about. And as we look at the text, we'll see what, what happened with them is, as time went on, they, they were expecting Jesus any minute, and that's a good thing, right? Jesus said what? Be ready for what? You know not the hour in which I come. So they were expecting any moment for Jesus to come, but there was one negative thing about that. As they were waiting, guess what happened? Some people in the church did what? They died. And for some reason, they were very confused about this. They started asking questions like, oh, no. Now what happens to them if Jesus comes? Do they miss out on the second coming? Do they get looked? So, so they had this, these weird ideas that needed to be addressed. And Paul uses the term that they've fallen asleep when he refers to the dead, those who die in Christ. And so... It's under these circumstances that Paul wrote the words that we're going to be looking at this morning. So we understand that Paul wrote them in order to correct their misconceptions of the gospel. 
and that they might be comforted by the truth, not only of the second coming, but the truth of the resurrection. They were so jazzed about the second coming that they kind of glossed over, you know, Paul's awesome teaching about what? The resurrection. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to see the truth of the resurrection sets the parameters of our grieving over the death of believers. And only two points. This Bless you. The first thing is this. The truth of the resurrection of believers gives us eternal hope. Secondly, the truth of the rapture of all believers gives us hope. And some of you theologians are probably, oh, what's he going to say? That? Don't worry. We'll get there. Relax. It'll be really good, I promise. And it'll be very reformed. No. All right, so the truth of the resurrection of believers give up, gives us hope. So Paul starts off by saying this, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have what? No hope. So right from the onset, I love it in the Bible when it makes it clear right from the beginning what the purpose of the text is. Like, why is he saying these things? And he tells us right up front that he has two related concerns. First of all, he doesn't want them to be ignorant about the truth of the resurrection of believers from the dead. First thing, he doesn't want them to be ignorant. You know, I hear kids say today, you're ignorant. I don't even know if they know what that means. But Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And then the second thing that's really closely related to it, they're almost one is I don't want you to grieve like the rest of men. I don't want you to grieve like someone who's got no hope. Why not? Why doesn't Paul want them to be ignorant of the truth? And I'll tell you why. Because when you're ignorant of the truth, it leads to unhealthy, unholy living. In this case, it would lead to the pagan practice. It's a pagan practice of grieving the loss of believing loved ones just as the world does, as if, as if there's no hope of life after the grave. That's to live like a what? A non-believer, non-Christian. That point can't be overemphasized in our day, and it's, it's been true for many days, not just in our culture, but certainly in our culture, our day of slighting doctrine in order to get to the practical side of Christianity. But here's the point. I found, I found that we have become a lazy society. We don't think deeply about our Christian faith. Sometimes we put our mind on the shelf. And I think it's very important that we understand that what we believe is so, so very important because it determines the way we live. My pastor Craig used to always say this. I'll never forget this. He used to say, ideas have consequences. If we believe that man appeared on earth by chance, the result of some extraordinary lucky, lucky uh, series of events, that there's no, no God, there's no life after the grave, then when a, when a loved one dies, what do we have? No hope. We'll grieve in utter despair and despondency. Now here's something you've got to give the Thessalonian Christians credit for. Unlike many believers today, they really did wait expectantly for the Lord's second coming. They were serious about it. They took it very serious. They were so focused, unfortunately, though, they went so far the other way. They were so fo focused on the second coming that they neglected Paul's teaching on the resurrection of the dead. 
So Paul tells the Thessalonians, he tells us this morning, that he doesn't want us to be ignorant of those who have fallen asleep and, 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 grieve, and thus grieve like the rest of men. And that's the practical issue that's driving Paul's detailed discussion of the resurrection of believers and the gathering of all believers to meet the Lord in the air. And that's where the word rapture comes from, by the way. It's the English translation of the Latin translation of the Greek. <laughs> so if you wonder where the word rapture comes from, it just means gathering up, which is in the text. So we will be gathered up with the Lord in the air. I remember one time I did a, a funeral service for an aged saint. And again, in, in, in the main, it was a very positive celebration of this person's life and their homecoming with Jesus. And of course, our loss is heaven's gain. And it was a wonderful time of celebration until the granddaughter, who didn't know Jesus, at least at that time, came up to speak. And she said these words. It hurts so much that we will never see each other again. And that was one of the clearest real-life illustrations of how those who don't know Jesus Christ and thus don't have that hope in their hearts, how they grieve. They grieve as those who have no hope. And in contrast with that tragic situation, which was chilling for all of us to hear, Paul wants believers to know that we are not to grieve like the rest of mankind. Why? Because we have a sure hope. A sure hope. Gilbert M. Beacon once put it this way. Listen, this is awesome. Other men see only a hopeless end, but the Christian rejoices in an endless hope. Isn't that awesome? So if you remember what he said earlier in verse 1 of this chapter, he says, it is God's will that we should be sanctified. And the root word, the root meaning of the word sanctified means what? Set apart for God, special to him. So what Paul is saying is just as our attitude and our behavior towards sex is to be set apart from the world's attitude, so as followers of Christ are grieving the loss of a believing uh, one who has died in the Lord is to be set apart. It is to be different than the way the world grieves. Even in our grief, we're called to be holy. Talk about innocent, I mean, an awesome benefit of believing in the good news of Jesus Christ. I, I've mentioned this once before. I bet you most of you don't remember it, but that's why I, I can bring them back up again because I'm counting on you. Um, there was a comic strip of Peanuts. Uh, Lucy and Linus were staring out the window on a rainy day. I love this one. And Lucy says, wow, look at the rain. What if it floods the whole world? Linus says, it'll never do that again. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that that would never happen again. And the sign of that promise is the rainbow. And then Lucy goes, you've taken a great load off my mind. And then Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. <laughs> See, even in peanuts, it's preaching some good theology. But it's so true here. The sound theology that the dead in Christ will rise first and that they will not be passed over and that they'll be the first to meet the Lord in the air. You know, um, I always think, and I've mentioned this before, if I was alive, if I'm alive when Jesus comes again, you know where I want to be? Go, you go north on the parkway 
and you go to this one spot on the parkway, and on both sides there's a huge um, grave. Do you ever see that graveyard? I mean, it's I, I want to be right there. I want to park. I want to have some popcorn and some Coca-Cola, because then it won't matter if I'm fat or not at that point. Um, some Coke and popcorn, and then I'm just going to watch. And, and just like popcorn, I'm going to hear just to see these bodies shooting up. And I'll be like, yeah, man. That is going to be so cool. Because we laugh, it's funny, but it's real. It is real. It's going to happen. That's what Jesus did. Right? That stone wasn't there. He walked out. And he says, now I'm going up. But I'll be back the same way I came up. Be ready. That's your turn. So we see, and I do want to mention this. He's not telling us we can't grieve. Some Christians, again, we, we just like with the second coming, they go too far. They go too far here. I'll tell you what, I've been married to my wife. It's going to be almost 30 years. Whichever one of us goes first, don't think that we're just going to slough that off. I thought about that when I was preparing this message. No, it's going to be a devastating day if she goes before me. And it'll be deep and it'll be real, but it will not be without hope. Because then she's going to be my sister. No longer my wife, but with a brand new body. And there will be a reunion. And it's interesting. Verse 14, he says, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Notice how deep our union with Christ is as believers. That even in our death, it says, we are united, what? With him. You know, people mention, you die alone. But that ain't true, is it? Not if you're a believer. You die in Jesus. And the word there in the Greek is actually through. You die through Jesus. And that's why Paul uses the term fallen asleep rather than died. He's not referring to soul sleep. He's referring to that your body is now on the ground. You're dead to the world. But notice Philippians 1, Luke 23, it's very clear that when we die, our spirit, our soul goes consciousness, goes to be with God. To be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there's no soul sleep, but our body is waiting for when the soul meets the body and poof. And only God can do that. So the second thing he points out and the last thing I want to point out this morning. So that great truth that according to the Lord's own word, we, will, we tell you that we who are still alive or are still left to the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is a tremendous comfort that changes the way we live. But the second and last thing is the truth of the gathering of all believers to meet Jesus in the air when he comes again is also Another aspect of the truth that gives us deep, real, tremendous, life-altering encouragement. And that's the last thing I want to point out. Verse 17, Paul says, after that, boy, how could you beat that, right? After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord, there's that word, forever and ever, hallelujah. 
So now Paul sets the doctrine of the second coming in its proper context for the believers in Thessalonica. It's after the resurrection of believers. Those Christians who are still alive and living when he comes will be caught up in the air with Jesus. Now listen, you want to talk reunion? You know, I think about family reunions. You haven't seen it at people in a long time. And unfortunately, it's usually at like funerals and things like that. But in this case, it's not at a funeral. It's at a resurrection. And it's at the second coming. And, and you know, if you miss me from singing down here, well, and you can't find me nowhere, where am I going to be? Mount Zion. I'll be singing up there, and so will you, who know Jesus. That's our real hope. And that's the hope that helps us in this life. It helps us get, when we fall to get back up and say, I'm back at it. Because that's a hope worth living for. And when those sins that, that easily beset us, they keep sparkling like gold, we realize they're just dumb. And they're distractions of the devil trying to get our mind off the real hope. Nothing can separate us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. What about sin? Well, he conquered it on the cross. What about death? It's going to be swallowed up in victory. Now, some of us, we, we will have arguments about when this is going to happen. You know, the rapture, they call it gathering up. I will tell you this much. It's going to happen when Jesus comes again. And I will tell you biblically, that's it. We're forever with the Lord. It's not like he takes us back up to heaven and there's a thousand more years where unbelievers live. No. When Jesus comes, guess what? End of story and beginning of new chapter. He makes all things new. We'll talk about that more in 2 Thessalonians. We'll get in real good detail about that. But it really, it's really interesting because in chapter 5 we're going to see, he tells us that the day of the Lord will take unbelievers by surprise and sudden destruction will come upon them. And yet the day of Jesus' return shouldn't take us by surprise because we've been waiting for that hope. Because we've been aligning our lives. Right? In the bedroom, at the workplace, in our grieving, getting ready for that day. The Sunday School Times reports that a Christian woman once was once talking to a servant of Christ about the assurance of her safety in the Savior. And she said this, I've taken a single ticket to glory and don't intend to come back. And the man replied, you're going to miss a lot. I've taken a return ticket. For I'm not only going to meet Christ in glory, but I'm coming back with him in power and great glory to the earth. I think that's awesome. It's not a one-way ticket. Because guess what God makes? A new heavens and a new what? Earth. earth. Listen, this is so comforting to me. We're not going to be Casper the ghost. Now I'm really dating myself. Do you remember that? Casper, the friendly ghost, whatever. We're not going to be like, ooh, that's not gonna, we're going to have real bodies. I wonder if we're going to eat real pizza. I don't know, but it's going to be good food. I promise that. You know, it's true that God gives us a measure of victory over sin on this side of the grave. But our great hope is the second coming of Christ where all will be made right. Not only in the world, as badly as we want that to happen, but think about it, brothers and sisters, in us. That battle over unbelief, that battle over sin will be over. No more struggle. 
You know, the struggle is real? Not anymore. Not when Jesus comes. My favorite is that chilling, you know, in the middle of the night when you hear, doesn't it make you wonder, oh, what's going on? None of those sirens. No more. No more do I have to get a call from the funeral home. Hey, this family didn't know the Lord. They're not religious, but could you come and do their service? No more of that. You know, today we have people that overemphasize the second coming. And they neglect the doctrine of the resurrection. But I will say this. I've got to give them credit. At least they do expect Jesus to come again. You know, some people, they, they pride themselves in sound theology. But the truth is, it's so sound, they're sound asleep. Because i got news for you. In the early church, they really took the gospel seriously that Jesus could come at any moment. And I think in many ways we've lost that. So when we sing, um, I know it was the blood, and we get to that last line, right? He's coming back again. I always want to jump out of my skin. Because think of the, uh, the history of redemption. What are we waiting for? Only one last thing. One last thing. Everything else has been accomplished. It's a firm hope, and it's a hope that drives us to live for Christ. Now look, here's the cool thing here. The real purpose of the passage. Look at verse 18. Paul says this, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, the word in the Greek for encourage could also mean comfort. And that's why I, I entitled the sermon, Comforting Confused Christians. But what's really neat here is Paul is telling every person in the body of Christ, not just pastors, to encourage one another with this. Brothers and sisters, we talk about everything else in the universe. We need to be gossiping the gospel to one another. We need to be encouraging one another. Hey, look ahead. Your eyes are over here. They need to be moved where? To the blessed hope of our, the coming of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hang on because he's coming. Hang on because he's going to right all wrongs. Hang on because I'll tell you what, you're not what you're going to be, but you ain't what you used to be. For those who may not know the Lord yet this morning, all I have to say to you is what are you waiting for? there was ever a time and an opportunity to get right with God, don't say domani. We always joke in Italy, we go domani, which means never, it means tomorrow, but we really mean domani, domani. Because now is the time of salvation. And no one else can give you this incredible eternity with God than his son, Jesus Christ whom to know is life eternal. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged and may it work out in your life where we could see the gospel at work in your life and if you don't know him yet, what are you waiting for? Get right with him now through faith and repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great hope, the solid hope 
of the resurrection. It's what we all look forward to. Those who are covered in the blood of Jesus. That great trump, that trumpet sound from heaven. And Father, for those who don't know you yet, we pray that this word would convict them of their need and that they would see how life apart from you is hopeless and that they would find the eternal hope in you so that when that trumpet does sound, they will meet you in the air. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.